The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. joined by author and business leader Bruce Piasecki in the continuing series. This extraordinary talent and visionary who works through the strength and works of leaders and writers from the past engages his own experiences in the corporate theatre to change the way in which our world and business navigates through to a new sense of consciousness. During our journey together over recent months, the essence, values and beliefs we have shared together has changed both to realizing the true values we currently seek in all areas of life, towards which an ultimate and shared mission welds our constant thinking in the re-evaluation and approach to change our own hearts in a severe and yet exciting world of new opportunities. The program today, The Art of Competitive Frugality. Panic and Resolve. Bruce Piasecki, welcome back to In Discussion. It's a great privilege to have you joining me again. I'm looking forward to this, David. It's becoming a positive addiction. Likewise. Bruce, uh, in past programs we have talked about your recent books, and I think that you're moving forward in writing uh, and bringing together a further book, which I'm uh, absolutely inspired by uh, with a working title of Doing More With Less. And I think that we're going to uh, talk in context uh, to certain uh, of those chapters uh, today. Yes. Can we start off with uh, talking about the fine balance that you and I have uh, discussed prior to the program and and during our our, um, notes between poverty, uh, frugality and excess. And I did use the word measured. Um, in starting off this this conversation, sure, you know this doing more with less another way to wealth is my eighth book, and it's an attempt to celebrate in a short hundred and fifteen page text uh, some of the lessons I've learned uh, during my thirty years as a management consultant, the privilege insights that I've had by by meeting with many leaders in our corporate affiliates program, plus the fun reading I've had, you know, during my life by encountering some amazing thinkers like Ben Franklin on frugality and innovation. So I, I started out, David, traditionally as a person who was very concerned about poverty in the world, um, social injustice, um, questions of the fate of a person in a a sea of complexity. Um, 
and came to realize in the course of the 55 years I've been on Earth that again and again and again and again I was seeing people who uh, had some anguish about the future, but that they were succeeding. And when I started to analyze the nature of their ascent in social circles and economic measures, I came to realize that those that I was attracted to that weren't being celebrated were incredibly frugal people. They were competitive people, but they were not necessarily flamboyant people. And so when I came to understand that our society, you know, as evident by the coverage you get of a Lady Gaga in the Rolling Stone, or the coverage you get on TV every evening with the Jersey Shaw personalities that are very rough and, and consumptive and, and in some ways dramatically ugly, I, I came to realize that there is a link between the understanding of worth, self-worth, and what society understands as wealth, that that link is sometimes horribly broken in industrial society, where all the lessons of poverty or all the lessons of frugality are not celebrated in society. So I wanted to write a book called Doing More With Less that celebrates those many people in the world that understood there is an intimate link between competitiveness and frugality. May we start that by citing Franklin's uh, amazing statement, and of course you uh, began your chapter four of your new book with this, so by diligence shall we do more with less perplexity uh, in, in the way to wealth. Uh, there is a uh, uh, there is a contextually a connection here between the word perplexity and your word that you use of complexity, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's a, a question really of different time, but same challenges. I agree. So, for example, supposing everyone in your listening audience knows how hard it is to earn a dollar and can, within their own self, within their own uh, spiritual well-being, understand that it's painful to need to owe a dollar twenty for every dollar you earn in your first 10 years out of a college education if you have you know the debt burden of an education or i think everybody knows that it's very painful if you're earning a hundred thousand dollars if your lifestyle is to spend a hundred and five thousand dollars and so i think what makes things perplexing and unnecessarily complex is when an individual has not thought through the danger of excessive debt. Now we can, in a business, I've grown a business for 30 plus years. I'm the type of businessman, David, who occasionally gets approached by a bank where they say, we would like to lend you $3 million. And I say, I don't need $3 million. And, and they say, in the end of the whole flirtation over hours, they say, well, Bruce, there's something un-American about you. Well, I believe the exact opposite. I, I believe that the source of inventiveness, the source of being competitive, is to learn how to do more with less. And somehow, 
in the last 25 to 30 years, advanced capitalism has gone senile. There's a form of senile capitalism out there where that has been forgotten, David. And the, and the link and the balance is so often broken. There's many measures of that. I mean, one measure, to just be dramatic at the start of this conversation, is when you have people who should be billionaires, like Michael Jackson, having $300 million or plus dollars of debt at their death at age 50. You know, how much of that is related to the stress of not understanding debt burdens? Or when you have people like Michael Tyson, who has earned, through his incredible violent skill of boxing, tens and tens of millions of dollars, and apparently used to have staffs of hundreds of people, you know, needing to make a very embarrassing film about himself to get cash to meet things. So it's not that I want to... I don't think... um, in any way as a thinker equal or superior to these super accomplished people. I'm using them because they're in the public domain as examples of a life trajectory where even billionaires can miss this point about frugality. And even super athletes or super rock stars can miss the point. And I'm a little confused about why industrial society has chose to celebrate the excess of those gladiators instead of bring the spotlight to people who in E.F. Schumacher's words you've got to trust these people because they can do so much with so little. Well is this not the confusion over the meaning the real meaning of financial independence and again in my notes I, I had said to you can we learn to be wealthy in serving the economic engine that we have, but still retaining that that nobility and spirit and community? I love that question, and I do think that a lot of this boils down to the understanding of self-worth. You know, is it measured only in how much surplus capital you can waste? which is what Thorsten Veblen studies in the theories of the leisure class, where something's happening even a hundred years ago where this great sociologist is saying there's a peculiar kind of behavior in the leisure class that um, he called conspicuous consumption. Um, Now, that has been around in India. That has been around in Australia. That has been around in the echelons of Europe. It's just that Veblen applied it to the new rich in America. There has always been a feature of the American way that other newly rich people want to imitate, you know, the robber baron phenomenon. But what I'm commenting on that I think you have described very elegantly in what you just said is that there is a relationship between the net worth of the self, how that self sits in with family and community, in which financial independence can be secured and declared well before having millions of dollars in your nest egg. Well, perhaps this was uh, this terrible human weakness of image. Uh, And again, um, I I had said 
Well, again, I love the Franklin quote, avoid extremes, forbear resenting injuries so much as you think they deserve. Uh, You know, this is is understanding the nature of wealth, both in practical and spiritual terms. And I I had also said to you, Bruce, if you want to be wealthy, you have to feel good on being one. And that means that all the human frailties of image have to be discarded. And in a sense, my new book is attempting to restore the wonder in a simpler kind of money-making, where you are satisfied in the act of contributing to society, in the act of earning for your family and for yourself with less. And, and so a couple of dramatic examples that are financial measures of what we're talking about. I find it there's a very important book that explores, um, and I'm not going to quote the specifics, but he's an insider to the whole Goldman Sachs, the whole Treasury Washington nexus. And he's written um, a book that unfortunately not many people will read about bad money. And, you know, growing up poor, um, the whole concept of bad money seemed like a fantasy. It seemed like a resentful, something that I should resent, that there isn't such a thing as bad money. That when you're poor, your perception is that any money that could secure a meal or, or, or uh, an apartment or a first car is good money. Well, of course, we learn over time that it's only in the ethical, social earning of that money that it's good money. That if you earn it in a socially damaging way, it could be bad money. So I'm talking to my 13-year-old daughter on holiday about this book that I'm reading that I'm finding very disturbing. And I want to tell you a few things she said about it. Apparently, economists for a long time have concluded that bad money will always push out good money. In other words, unethical behavior um, or greed may often in economic systems, be it you know the caste system of India or the industrial financial system of America, that bad money will push out good money. So I'm saying to my daughter about this, what do you think about this? And she goes, well, Dad, let's figure out what will push in the good money back. (laughs) And I thought that was such a brilliant and simple description of what my new book is attempting to be about. It always always takes a a, a younger person to come out with those profound statements. I agree. Um, And I'm just delighted that she's willing at this point to listen and to talk about, you know, what I'm working on, even on vacation, because when I get haunted by a book, it's hard for me not to read or think in that space. So, you know, we're surfing these beautiful waves, and she comes up with this idea. So so hopefully we can talk about, is there such a thing as bad money, and is there such a thing as good money being able to push out bad money? So... When people think about, in an economic tradition, when they think about bad money, they think about speculative plays that help through self-dealing a few at the cost of society. Um, And so throughout human history, bad money is often corrected by regulation in government or by internal social checks where people like Madoff are discovered or where people downsize uh, a Citibank or an AIG um, because of 
so many people churning money on money that it doesn't have any net social value except for the ones who are on the take. So now that I'm 55, I've come to accept that there may in fact be something in the world called bad money. So I start reading these books, David, and I'm astonished how insightful Franklin was about some of this stuff, because he does get back to the fundamental basics, where in order to be wealthy, you have to be already satisfied in yourself, because otherwise you might have a lot of financial surplus, and you might be on the take, and you might have a lot to spend, but you are not necessarily discovered the worth of yourself in society. So I do believe now that something went wrong when American capitalism left traditional manufacture of products, the making of cars and windows and homes and tools, where in the last 20 years, 21% of our money was from financial institutions. So one out of fifth jobs had become the infrastructure of what I'm calling senile capitalism. So in other words, back in World War II, back in prior centuries, it was at the back in the kind of capitalism that Karl Marx critiqued, you needed to own the means of production. You needed to own the assets of manufacture in order to make that car or to make that home or to make the parts of that home. Well, I found it quite astonishing reading these empirical books to discover that 21% of our economy that led to the telecom boom, the real estate boom, these derivatives booms are actually based on people who have become seduced by the notion of an extreme. So this is where Franklin's right, avoid extremes, by an extreme pursuit of theoretical money, of speculative money, that has nothing to do with real physical assets. And, and, that, and that, Bruce, you know, raises this uh, word of risk. You know, uh, in talking to a lot of commentators, they seem to uh, uh, take on the position that risk is a good word, is a sensible word, is suggesting in some way that they are being heroic. But in actual fact, it does not have the same meaning anymore as it would have done, say, a hundred years ago. And one of the things that I so enjoyed in your chapter five when one elects to leave wonder. Mm-hmm. You started off by saying, if you get past all the hype, the world of business is not really all that high. It is rather pedestrian. Uh, given that both of us share this huge interest and, and background in literary works, I'd love to ask you to define more that word pedestrian in this context. Sure. And let me, in your <laughs> reader's mind, I first want to tell a story so that people get a sense of what I actually do in my management advisory company, the AHC Group. You know, they can visit it at ahcgroup.com. To just tell a quick story, during the scandal of Enron, um, we were advisors to a utility in Baltimore that was a remake of the old utility called Baltimore Gas and Electric, and they had earned an effusion of $256 million from Morgan Stanley. Um, 
so we were hired as advisory to that team, and they asked us, well, should we become more like Enron? Enron seems to be the highest growth rate of a pretty staid industry type. And so what my firm does is we do benchmarking of corporate strategy and leaders, so we actually went to five different kinds of utilities, Pacific Gas and Electric, which is a corporate affiliate of our group. We went to Southern California Edison. We went to Exelon, which owns most of the nuclear complex in America. It's a union of two different utilities, a Chicago and a Philadelphia one. And, and we set up for the leaders uh, a way to best spend this $256 million. And our conclusion, being very Ben Franklin-like, was you cannot make electrons without having the physical assets to make electricity. So we predicted in our reports that Enron could not be real because in the end, the bulk of their money was not based on physical access, you know, um, assets. So I'm not trying to say that this book I'm writing now in middle age is based on theory. It's the kind of lessons I've learned. And so I file these reports after spending a week at Enron, after feeling really strange every time my staff is down there, we're asking questions about international business, we're asking questions about market power markets to California, we're asking all the right questions. And there's always this young MBA hanging out with all these senior executives. And I find out that her main role is to go back every hour after a meeting and tell Skilling, the number two guy under Ken Lay, what we're asking, right? So I was thankful that Enron let us benchmark there, but I was not thankful of the fact that they had this so-called economic intelligence person hanging around in my benchmarking meetings. So that's what first set me off that there's something strange there, some kind of number shenanigans going on. And so I come back and I write, file this report saying, probably better to become more like a Pacific Gas and Electric with a cleaner emissions profile and a mixed generating asset base, you know, part nuke, part coal, part oil, part river, part purchased, than a fanatical fantasy that you could double your worth in 30 months. Um, capitalism, at its best, is about intelligent risk, not irrational risk. It's also, is it not also, Bruce, about the difference between a tangible and intangible product? I mean, let's, uh, and I don't like going back to this, but let's do it anyway. You go back to the Founding Fathers and the Republic was uh, created so that every man and woman in this country could recognize their own tools, become their own capitalists, create something tangible with a, a net negative government effect beyond regulation. Are we not now since, and I always believe that it's the 1950s that really started this huge uh, uh, consumerism push, is it not now in the instances that you're citing with AIG, with Madoff, with uh, BP, where you're seeing a lot of money being shifted around uh, and a lot of people in the boardroom suggesting that they have 
some sort of value, whether that's in terms of assets or, or whatever it may be. But in actual fact, there's no tangible evidence to show that it's having uh, any implication upon social values in improving people's lives. And what's wonderful about the question and what's so complex and potentially perplexing unless you come back to the four basic principles of this new book, is that there is a significant difference, difference between tangible value, you know, the kind that we can license and take out inter- intellectual property rights on, like a new drug or a new way of making a gear shift for a Volvo truck. Th- those are tangible assets, and engineering and scientific expertise is often focused on a tangible asset. Now, the, the new mystery since the 1950s is the way the stock market works, is that it has developed new metrics for good governance. That is, the intangible value of leadership. So my last three books, World Inc., The Surprising Solution, and the one before them, are books where I begin talking to the people in the investment houses and I begin talking to the valuation experts about this very delicate balance between tangible assets and intangible value. Now, the horrible truth is that an equity, in other words, the fair valuation of a stock, is based on the abstraction of an anticipated future value of a firm. So when you buy a Toyota car, it's different than buying a Toyota stock. So the whole system of advanced capitalism is based on the fact that we're going to hold stock in somebody. We're going to feel that that firm is fair to the world. If the equity is a proper balance between tangible assets and intangible governance assets. So I want to go down in your show as being a supporter of capitalism, being a person who tries to make intelligent risks in my own business and in the many multinationals I advise, that has come to conclude that there is value in intangible things like governance or corporate strategy or product positioning, marketing. However, those things, which I've kind of become expert on, are real to the value of a corporation. And what but is, they're uh, not uh, financial maneuvers. But, but what is the, the best outcome? What is the net effect that we should see in society out of that opportunity? So, number one, it's probably <laughs> best to have a society in which the fair bulk of the people are involved in the actual contribution of products to society. The fair bulk being, and it could be a great piano player, it could be a great violin player, they are providing the product of music to society. But most of us will have to make actual things, like a window or a fastener in an aerojet plane or whatever. But There is, in advanced capitalism, the need for leaders. And my books are often about leaders. And what I'm often arguing is that there is such a thing as good governance, but there is also many instances of bad governance. So if you're at a firm 
where the people are concluding that they can make more money through their investments in real estate as opposed to in their utility on the on the New York Stock Exchange as opposed to actually buying more equipment to generate actual electrons then you have a problem and i've worked on a case for three years in which more than half of the billions were dedicated to real estate investment based on a firm that really didn't know that much about real estate but had the surplus billions to do that so there is such a thing as good leadership david in which one either wants to make electrons or one wants to own property or one wants to grow the value of a firm and it is a complex mix between eliminating the bad governance eliminating the waste eliminating the wrong-headed decisions versus finding the right balance between tangible asset and intangible value that leads me on to your avatar principles and also uh the great Schumacher and his ideas of reshaping. Before we look at that, may I just look at technology, Bruce? Now, going back again, we know that this country was formed on the basis of each of us as our own capitalists with our own tools being able to build things, make things. Now, in my many conversations with experts and commentators in the field, there still seems to be a terrible misunderstanding of the word technology. Now, instead of people thinking with their hands so much, do we not need to train particularly our youngsters in education to think of gifts and tools in terms of what they can create with technology? That's a great question. So, um, you know, I was born to become a factory worker, and through the kinds of things I studied and thought about, I became one of society's many thought workers, right? So I spend my time in front of leaders, in front of computers, analyzing data as opposed to making a new car. So when I worked for Toyota, we helped conceive the hybrid powertrain and its product family of 10 different models. I didn't actually manufacture the car. So the reason I feel equipped to talk about technology as you ask this question is I think that our species is misnamed and we think of ourselves as homo sapiens that meaning all thinking or all-knowing species i think men and of course women are more tinkerers than knowers we tend to learn by doing we we tend to try something and then learn how to do it better this this is our competitive nature and so technology is a natural byproduct of our natura. It's the way of humans. It's the way to wealth. However, in this new book, when I talk about another way to wealth, I'm talking about intelligent risk, intelligent use of technology, and intelligent investment. It's, it's the, each of those things depend on restraint. Let you give you a couple examples on technology. The whole idea of pursuing high risk, deep horizon, mild deep down oil, the whole idea of pursuing supersonic 
planes to take us from Paris to New York in two hours rather than four or five hours. Sometimes technology can grow so far that it, 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 it eliminates the possibility of human restraint. And so what I learned about the E.F. Schumachers from the E.F. Schumachers and from the Ben Franklins is any innovation has to be a balance between what government wants, what the market needs, and what individual inventors can bring to bear. So I think of the act of invention as a three intersecting circles, the market in the middle, the technologist on the left, with the government enabler on the right. Okay? It's, you can't create an invention without patents from government, without profit from the market, and without a special kind of inventor. So the, the question is, what happens in a world of giantism where we start investing most of our net egg in things that might not need to be made. Okay. Now, I'm not smart enough, David, to tell you that I could choose what technologies that we're addicted to to abandon. But I am interested in a world in which people can talk about the kinds of technologies that would provide a better world. And that's why when I originally wrote World Inc., it was going to be called Better Products, Better World, because I've been thinking about these problems for 10 years. May I just come in there? <clears throat> because And we're going to race forward, so we'll come back. I was really interested in your notes. You talk about these three intersecting circles, the realm of science and technology, the markets, and the role of government, and essentially that we are captive. We are um, molded, as it were, um, as consumers to follow the methods of those different entities. Would you not agree with me that that paradigm has to be completely switched so that those entities learn from the consumer in order to realize the restraints that you're talking about? That's a great question. And I have to tell you, I can openly confess that I haven't. The reason I write these books is to try and figure out where I stand on questions like that. Uh, what I could tell you is that I don't like thinking about consumers. I like thinking about citizens. And what I do is I ask myself when I'm writing a book, does a citizen need a hospital? Yes. Does a citizen need a bridge to get to work? Yes. Does a citizen need a road? Yes. There are, need to be many people who think with their hands to create those hospitals, bridges, and roads. All that's good. Then I say, and there probably needs to be politicians, and there probably needs to be patent lawyers who think with their heads about channelizing the skills in the right way. So what I'm concerned about, David, I sense has come up from historic, from not learning the lessons of history. So, so for example, the basic premise of high finance capitalism is that more is always better, that private property is always best, that nature itself is a sideshow to humanization, and that the only way to measure the growth of the economy is to grow, is to grow forever. In other words, gross domestic product. Now, if, if you look back at those fundamentals, 
it's a perception problem. People have misunderstood history in my way of thinking as a writer. It is, it is not a technical, technological problem mostly. It's an attitude problem. So that when I write about avatar environmentalists, when I write about people emerging in society to learn how to speak again simply about the role of government, about the role of technology, about the role of markets, it's because I believe things have gotten so perplexing and out of joint that a new kind of person will evolve again that is going to have that humor, that diplomacy of a Ben Franklin and start knocking sense again into this. So I think you have to think with your hands, you have to think with your heads, and we are captive in our options. And, and, and let, me, let me just come in there. Um, this is where, uh, you know, when you talk about the purpose of this new book, you talk about those three variables, money, people, and rules. I am fascinated today that you change out that word consumer for citizen. As a consumer to me, the use of that word is so negative in its effect. Unfortunately, we are living in a world since the 1950s where we are essentially conditioned to become a consumer rather than the citizen that you've just talked about. Yeah, and this is really a fascinating problem because, you know, you have to go back to is this in human nature or is this a social deviation of human nature? And I have enough trust in watching poor to wealthy people understand citizenship that I think it can be understood and it can be appreciated. So in other words, um, I am a person knowledgeable about economics who thinks that economics becomes a dismal science when it only wants to talk about the behavior of consumers. This is where you talk about this, use this word pedestrian. <laughs> yes. And in fact, there is nothing super high or super high-ended about um, finance or business or the best businesses are as basic as breath. In my book, in this book, I'm talking about people who do really basic things. Let me give you some examples so that uh, we can get back to why I feel it necessary to be reminded that business is a noble but pedestrian effort. Um, when, when you think about drugs in modern society, then you think about, say, I, I had an ear infection from the last week where I was on vacation with my family and Cape May and encountering too much bacteria in the water at this beautiful historic resort. And so I have an ear infection and I do need antibiotics and I'm knowledgeable enough to know that they are boosters of my immune system. And I did take Advil during the four days of pain in the throbbing ear. So that being said, what I find fascinating is that there is a CEO in Israel who's almost like Ben Franklin all over again. As the world went from 30% generic to 78% generic, he more than doubled the growth of his company and is a major player now in a world of the Visors and the Mercs by manufacturing and selling high-quality generic drugs at one-third the price but at 
99 to 100% the effectiveness without the excess. So this is an interesting case. You try and understand what is this guy and his team actually doing. Well, when they're buying out all these other drug companies that are failing, what does he do? Well, he has to inherit certain jets, corporate jets, from these firms that pursued excess, that forgot, that ran a kind of senile capitalism. And what does he do when he inherits these corporate jets? He doesn't. He, he works out of a relatively humble office, I've been told. Um, so what does he do? He uses these jets to take new potential customers and fly them from their homes to his manufacturing sites so that they could do a quality review, so that they could say all this stuff about how we have to charge ten times as much for this drug is bogus. We can charge you one-third and still get the quality review. Come fly and visit this. So he's Ben Franklin all over again. He's taking that wheelbarrow and walking it down Philadelphia and saying, look at me. I'm industrious. I actually do it a cheaper and better way, as opposed to just a cheaper way. This was, this was the interesting thing, Bruce, uh, with my conversation with Dr. Fahid that you so kindly uh, referred me to. Uh, the uh, ideas of uh, creating corporate social responsibility in the Middle East is, uh, to my mind, very different to the, the way that it's uh, conducted over here. And he was doing the same thing. They, uh, their, their sense of corporate social responsibility was to um, fully enable the local communities, find where local communities needed employment, needed to be re-engaged, brought back into the 21st century. And uh, they, they almost copied that. They, they f flew people in. They, they discovered what the people needed, what the communities needed. And they managed to find a way, or they're managing to find a way to do it cheaper uh, with a, a more improved net effect. And you're also talking in some ways there in, in that method in the way that Walmart do it. It, it. And I'm going off track here slightly. No, no, I think so. But let me comment on the Middle East before we get into Walmart, because it's very complicated. I, I do believe that senile capitalism has another forgetful thing, and it forgets that regions are significantly different in general culture. And so... True, true capitalism understands regional difference and doesn't get seduced by the notion that the world is flat and everything is equally globalized. And so the reason why I'm honored when Dr. Fatih takes the things I write for a UK, you know, like a, a Reuters piece or takes the things I write for Christian Science Monitor and brings them to the 22 nations of the Middle East, it's because there's some translation that has to occur there. Their, their, their world is not flat. I think it's a profound deception to assume that the world is flat. It's, it was a very successful book by Thomas Friedman, but it ignores the fundamental feature of how one enables communities um, and how one brings the value of wealth to a community. So. It's easy from the perch of the New York Times foreign editor position to assume the things that allow GE to outsource financing to India is a miracle because it happens so fast and it is pretty sexy. But it is wrong to assume that we have one world 
and that ready or not, it's all going global. We, we are all in the same boat, but there are huge regional differences on who's holding the oar. Yes, but, but nevertheless, what you're saying here, uh, and, and I think that it's an incredible conclusion to this subject, is that you're defining how multicultural uh, ideas can work. Yes. I mean, we, we're, we're talking about the way in which Dr. Fahey in, in uh, the Middle East is making this work, overcoming uh, cultural differences, uh, differences in creed. Um, and is that not the way that it's going to work in the future if indeed a global uh, village is going to continue? I'm totally in agreement for that. And so just to make a dramatic contrast, because I think part of the act of being a, war, a, a writer is also being a warrior, but a warrior of concepts and words. And there is a political purpose and a social purpose to what I write. So I would like to say that if all the world became just at the mercy and the service of pockets of super wealthy areas, that would be a horrible consequence of the swiftness of information and globalization. If instead we were able to raise the boat so that the people holding the oars were servicing Australia in its drought and India in its educational base and so forth and so on. So I, before we got into Walmart, I did want to uh, appreciate the quote of Shakespeare that you use, where Shakespeare says, frugality is a fortune for the poor and wisdom for the rich. Now, that's typical Shakespearean grandeur, where he's making a dramatic contrast, and he's making us <clears throat> realize the oxymoron that frugality is a fortune. Um, e.F. Schumacher the way he says that is he says, I respect the poor so much because they make so much out of so little. Well, I have to say that that is probably one of the uh, most wonderful statements that I've ever read in literature. I think Shakespeare was more profound than we could ever know. Uh, and on a basic human level, Bruce, I mean, having been to places like Nigeria and directed films and seeing uh, the worst conditions and that nobody could even imagine over here, I can honestly say that people over there were in many ways happier than than, than we are over here in the way that we seek money as our, our main goal. And I know that's making a very uh, um, profound statement and generalized statement, but I think it's worth mentioning that. I think you're right, and I, I do think that what's so wonderful about Shakespeare's dramatic contrast is that in one sentence, he forces the reader through delight, not just through persuasion, to say, well, where do I stand on this? Am I going to explore the fortune and frugality, or am I going to indulge the wisdom in the rich? Uh, and what I think is as we go through different stages of life, as we self-actualize, we have to continually ask ourselves that question in order to be authentic and responsive. Let's just talk about, because we're very quickly coming towards the end of the program here, Bruce, the way that we need to bring the next generation forward. And let's return to your avatar principles. And, and I do, and, and we'll discard Walmart for now because I think this is more important. Okay. Because you sent me an email, you forwarded me an email about the enterprise of the Oberlin College. Um, 
And this, I think, is a huge educational stimulus for young people to look at projects like this. What is it with the avatar principles that you're most uh, interested in pursuing? Okay. Well, you know, the piece I wrote for um, greenbiz.com called The Advent of Avatar Environmentalists was my attempt to popularize and describe the full costs of BP's Gulf oil spill. Um, so I start the piece by describing how, um, and I think you posted it free on your webpage, so I don't need to go into all the detail for your listeners, but essentially um, six years ago I was asked by a dozen BP leaders to come to London to talk to them about governance and what is good governance and what is proper industrial positioning on issues of growth and safety. And that's what my firm is known for. And I was honored, but it didn't click back then. But now after the disaster, I can say, I can think back on that week and realize that they were asking the wrong question because their essential question was, how do we prepare for world scrutiny when we hit 300 billion in revenue and my assumption on how history in the world works is that the world of event will always be fiercer and more severe than the world of thought that's why humans have trauma and that's why companies go bankrupt and so if you assume what i assume that the mighty will fall and that people will have traumatic experiences what I began to write about when I described avatar environmentalists is that too much of the sustainability debate, too much of the environmental compliance debate has become narrow. It's become a debate about a scientific nuance, about a debate about the risk interpretations of that scientific nuance as translated into legal protocol. And my first two books, Beyond Dumping and America's Future in Hazardous Waste Management, books that no one listening should read, were books that taught me about how you normally win in a sustainability and environmental debate by being very narrow, by coming up with, it's almost like the way you have to defeat tobacco as an addictive product. You know, the people who fought tobacco and got the proper warnings on tobacco had an incredible patience to fight the fight based on science, the facts of science, and the facts of law, right? Now, social improvement is always going to be boiling down to allocation decisions based on the facts of science and the statutes of law. However, in today's new media, I predict the advent of an avatar environmentalist who stands tall you know, like in the film of Cameron's, this 16-foot person with green eyes who is closer to the truth than you get at when you only debate it based in science and law. And these people will work through the night, like in this film, and they will hold hands across nations. And I believe that they are emerging so that the that even if the political scheme will have difficulty regulating carbon and climate, 
these avatar environmentalists are likely to emerge. And so I wanted to reflect on the fact that these people will have tremendous impact through Twitter and new social networks and media because they will change our appetite like an avatar throughout history changes the culture's storyline not just it actually changes the culture's fears and satisfactions and that's what makes them an avatar so i decided even though i'm not sure if it's going to be in the new book i decided to write this new piece after the bp oil spill because i was just stunned at how bad the governance could happen after that kind of high-level visit I had for that week. So I was shocked at how in a sheer 48 months or 60 months, the logic of advanced capitalism brought them to where they could lose $21 billion in value. In your new book, you talked about the oil spill, uh, you and quoting from that from the White Cliffs of Dover to the High Chalk Cliffs of Foreign Seas, from the Amalfi uh, Coast Wealth to the Nile Delta Coast will cure our illness, Coast will make us delay decline. Uh, and also in finishing, Bruce, I was going to uh, go to Franklin. Uh, where he extended his his um, his theories and added on a uh, final point, uh, talking about humility and the, the the fact that he had to come to a humility himself. Is it not with young people today uh, studying for MBAs uh, at, at any level of education, or indeed who have just come out of education into working in real life, have to see evidence on both of these issues in order to? Uh, become, uh, as I said, part of this uh, intersecting circle between science, technology and the market so that they can drive the world rather than being driven and so that we can show them the actual uh, aftermath of events like the oil spill, but we can show them on the other side the great things that are created by an institution like the Oberlin College who is doing so much to become greener and environmentally friendly. I would like you to interview David Orr, um, if you if you like, because he's the real spearhead of that thing. That's why I shared it with you. Let me answer the question of coasts, the question of the oceans that the coasts are indicators of, and the health of those oceans, and also how it relates to capitalism. Yeah, and then talk with Franklin. Um, in the end, I have faith in humanity, and I believe that these avatars that will stand tall and help shape a better world, they may actually have a Harvard MBA or an INSEAD MBA, but they will know that what they're doing is both noble and pedestrian. They will have that built-in, ratcheted-down humanity that is deeper than any kind of feigned humility and is significant. The way I see the world is 82% of it is ocean, a lot of it is coast, and a huge number of us live on the coasts. And so when I'm thinking about writing Doing More With Less, Another Way to Wealth, I am trying to articulate for the reader how to make their own life, how to grow the value of their firm, and how to live through generosity and giving back 
And I think it's those three principles that Franklin was trying to get at in his passages on the art of virtue. What is it, do you think, that we can all learn from the Shakespeare's and the Franklin's of this world in moving forward in the world that we have to face now and make uh, severe changes ourselves? Three things I hope that at least I learned from having the privilege of being able to read classics. One, one is that all organizations boil down to money, people, and rules, and that you can't become cynical about any of them, that you have to learn to tolerate and advance rules, you have to celebrate and enjoy the diversity of people, and you also have to not be afraid of making money. That's one thing that I actually have tried to learn through the classics. The second thing that, that I would say, which I find is quite amazing, is that the world is so swift and so severe that the individual, in discovering their self-worth, learns that they cannot do it alone, that they need large teams and large networks. And that's the magic of humanity, is that if you have faith in people, the healing solution will occur, the surprising solution will occur. So the kind of capitalism I write about in this new book is one based on not only money, but the celebration of people, the creativity of people, and the tolerance and celebration of rules. Bruce Piasecki, as usual, it has been a great privilege to spend this time with you. Marvelous conversation, and yet again, another program that will launch us into yet another program in the future. Thank you for your time. I suggest your listeners read Wealth and the Commonwealth, which is a book that came out 10 years ago that's excellent on these themes. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as we have. If you need information on this and any other program in the series, you can visit davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management 